Amen. And good morning to everyone. It's nice to see you out there. Welcome again to the people on the live stream. Sometimes you just need to get away from it all, don't you? Uh, You're in the middle of life, and uh, maybe you can't see things really clearly. I'm a big believer in getting away once in a while. Take a trip. You've got to get away from your environment so that you can see your environment a little bit more clearly, because when you're in the middle of it, a lot of things maybe don't make sense. Uh, I went on a bike ride the other day, and an hour later, I came back with a whole new perspective. So uh, do you find yourself living anxiously by your own wits and muscle instead of living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence? Let me say that again and ask that again. Do you find yourself living anxiously by your own wits and muscle instead of living effortlessly in the active presence? presence in this world, God's active presence in this world. Maybe you need to take a trip. A trip can reorient you. Today, we're going to take a trip. But of course, it's not a trip in the conventional sense. You will not have to leave your seats, but you will have to use your imagination. You will have to imagine the things that are happening in our text today. Paul is going to be our tour guide. Today, we're going to take a trip to heaven. So, strap yourselves in. So this is week three in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're calling it the mystery of Christ because this word mystery appears several times in the book and we are probing the mysteries that are now revealed in Christ. So today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter two. So let's uh, let's look at that, shall we? Beginning at verse one. First of all, verses one through three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says that we were dead. In the most, sadly, the most important sense imaginable, we were dead, all of us, before coming to Christ. And everyone right now who does not yet know Christ is dead spiritually. What does that mean? Well, Paul later defines this in the book of Ephesians when he says that those who are dead are without God in this world, without God in this world, and alienated from the life of God. So that if you don't have the life of God in you, you are dead. Spiritually speaking, you are dead. Just because you're breathing doesn't mean you're alive. So all of us, before coming to Christ, were dead in our trespasses and sins. Trespasses are deliberate acts of disobedience. You cross the line. You are a rebel in that you are guilty of trespasses. And sins has to do with uh, just missing the mark, not, uh, you know, not making the grade, not uh, achieving anything close to what uh, we could do with uh, measuring up to God's standards. So uh, we, are, we were all rebels, and um, we were all alienated from the life of God. We were all rebels and failures. 
And these were the things that we actually walked in, our trespasses and our sins. As if these were the paths, as if, as if trespasses and sins were the paths that we walked in. And not only that, we were subject to the world. The world is collective humanity, which is um, against the will of God. Collective humanity in all of humanity's thoughts and attitudes and beliefs and actions and postures that have nothing to do with God and, in fact, go against the will of God. So we were subject to the world. We were also subject to the devil or Satan, here called the prince of the power of the air, because Satan has a a certain authority between heaven and earth. For now, God has granted him that, so he is called the prince of the power of the air. We were subject to him and also subject to his influence. Finally, we were subject to the flesh, which is that part of an individual that is opposed to God. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We were subject to all of these influences. And therefore, we were children of wrath. That is the wrath of God, which means we were objects of the wrath of God. Why? Because God is angry about sin. Sin destroys humanity. He is angry about what sin does to us and what sin does to others. Therefore, before coming to Christ, we were all children of God's wrath. Our condition was absolutely desperate. And the condition of everyone who does not yet know the Savior is a desperate condition. Now, growing up, uh, I think people would have called me a good kid. I was the oldest of three brothers, and I didn't get into much trouble. I felt the burden of the firstborn, as so many firstborn children feel. So I didn't want to mess up, and uh, I was law-abiding. I I obeyed the rules, and um, really, I I didn't get into much trouble. About the worst thing that I did was throw peaches at cars. I shared that with you a few weeks ago. I threw peaches at cars with some friends for some thrills. That was about the worst thing that I did. I remember one time standing in the line in the grocery store. I wanted to buy a piece of gum. It cost one cent back then, one cent for a piece of gum. And the line was long and I was tired of waiting. So I walked out of the grocery store with the piece of gum without paying for it. I felt guilty about that. I stole a one cent piece of gum. People would have called me a good kid. Now, I had, no, I had no faith to speak of. I didn't see any need for God in my life. I had a few friends who went to church, and I was very happy that my parents did not make me go to church because I was sure that I would be just as bored as my friends were at the churches that they went to. So I felt no need for God. And in fact, um, I think... Um, you know, I, the goodness that I had, I think uh, maybe that was in some sense some kind of opposition to God. Because if I were good enough, and if God happened to exist, then God was going to keep his nose out of my business. I think you would have called me an agnostic. But uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I heard one of my teachers say that humans invented religion to explain the unexplainable. And that made sense to me. So by that time, I was an agnostic bordering on being an atheist. And so all my goodness, so-called, had nothing to do with God. But here's the reality. I was dead. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was subject to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I was a child of wrath. I was the walking dead. 
And here's what the evil one has done to so many billions of people. He has convinced them, working through the world, working through the flesh, that God, if he happens to exist, or the gods, if they happen to exist, what he or what they really want is good people. He wants people to do good deeds, people to do good things. And the assumption is then that you can do a few good things and live basically a good life and you will be good enough for God. So if there is such a thing as an afterlife, God will say, that's good enough. But think about this. Think about the audacity that it takes to actually believe that you could be good enough for God. All your goodness, then, is just filthy rags because that is an offense to God to actually think you could be good enough for him in all his holiness. Such is the state of so many people in our world. So we start out on earth dead in our transgressions and our sins, or our trespasses and our sins. Now, we're going to go to heaven. Are you ready? Let's look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The richness of God's mercy emerges from the great reservoir of his love. And therefore, he acts. He makes us alive in Christ. Those of us who believe in Christ, first of all, he makes us alive in Christ. Then he raises us up with Christ. And then he, third, he seats us in the heavenly realms with Christ. Now, we saw last week at the end of Ephesians chapter one that Christ has been raised from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead so that Christ now is seated on, seated at the right hand of God. God shares his throne with Christ. And now we understand somehow in a way that's really hard to imagine that when you come to believe in Christ, you are made alive. You rise from the dead, spiritually speaking. And right now you are seated in the heavenly places on this heavenly throne with Christ in some kind of position of authority. So you right now are seated in two places. I see all of you. You are seated right here in Peninsula Bible Church in our worship center. You are also, if you believe in Jesus, seated in the heavenly unseen realms. It's really hard to believe, but you have to use your imagination to believe it's true. And every once in a while, I picture myself there. I picture myself because I am there, seated on a throne with Christ at the right hand of the Father. So you ask yourself, how can this be? And the answer to the question is twofold. First of all, because God is able to do it. We see this in Ephesians 1 and 2. God is able to do it, and because God wanted to do it, he is rich in mercy. He has this great love for us. We believe in Christ. He seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. We're in heaven. By grace, you have been saved. 
And salvation here, being saved, is defined as being alive. You're saved. That means you were dead, now you're alive. You're alive in Christ. And I hope you can feel that if you believe in Jesus. Once in a while, you can feel the sensation of being alive in Christ. And so why did God do all of this? Well, one of the reasons is that he wanted to demonstrate how great he is to the universe. And what does he do when he wants to say, when he wants to show the universe, everything in the universe, the richness of his love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, what does he do? He says, look at him. Look at, look at her. Uh, look, look at Rob. Yeah, Rob. Yeah. Look, look, look at him. Look at, look, at, look at the people here. You want to know how great God is? Look what I have done in their lives. Now Paul completes the thought. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. So how do you define faith here? Faith is receiving a gift. God wants, you to, wants to give you the gift of salvation, the gift of salvation in Christ. What do you do? You open your arms and you receive the gift. It's not based on any accomplishment. It's based on opening your arms to receive this great gift. And what is the gift? The gift is salvation. And the grammar works this way to make us think that even our disposition to believe in the first place has been helped and created by God so that we are predisposed to receive the gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not as a result of works, as if we could do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. How can that be? How can you actually save yourself? How can you actually make yourself alive? How can you actually raise yourself from the dead? How can you actually seat yourself at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Once you see salvation in those terms, you recognize it's not based on anything that you could do. So that no one should boast. Humans really love to boast. Now, they're careful about doing it and to whom they do it. And oftentimes they don't do it to anybody, but they boast in their own minds. We boast in our own minds to think, okay, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm not too bad. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm okay. Deep in our human insecurity, we desperately want something to have to boast about. Why? We don't want much to do with God, maybe. Because if we're good enough, if we have something to boast about, maybe God's going to keep his nose out of our business. So, but the good news is we have nothing to boast about. And once you recognize that, you are free. You are free from the bondage of boasting and thinking, ah, I'm good enough, or I'm going to be good enough, or I'm going to prove myself. People would have called me a good kid. No one would have called Jeffrey Dahmer a good man. He was a serial killer. In fact, he was worse than a serial killer, but I cannot speak of his other crimes here. When he was sentenced, however, he said this. 
Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. In closing, I just want to say that I hope that God has forgiven me. I know that society will never be able to forgive me. I know the families of the victims will never be able to forgive me for what I have done. I have seen their tears, and if I could give my life right now to bring their loved ones back, I would do it. I am so very sorry. Then he closed with this, quoting 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In prison, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized. In prison, several pastors met with him, and all those pastors were convinced of the validity of his faith. Later, the murderer was murdered. He was bludgeoned to death by a fellow inmate. Now, no one knows for sure because no one can look into a person's heart, but it is possible, based on these words, that Jeffrey Dahmer is with the Lord right now. It is possible. Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, and me, the good kid, were both in the same desperate condition. Dead. Dead in our sins. Children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And let me say to you, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are a child of wrath, an object of God's wrath. But there is so much love in God's heart for you. And he wants you to come to him. So you just need to do two things. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Confess your sins. Turn from that. Turn to Christ. Accept the forgiveness that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And what? You will become alive. You will be saved. I beg you to do that if you have not done so yet. And what Christ offers just can't, we can't even begin to talk about what Christ offers. We can see some of it here. So, started out on earth, walking in our, trans, in our transgressions and sins. We took a trip to heaven where we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, finally, Paul takes us back to earth. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. So we have nothing to boast about. And this this word that is translated workmanship is an artistic word. We're God's workmanship. We're God's works of beauty. 
Uh, He thought about this. He created us. He crafted us. And he recreated us. That's the thing here. It's not simply that we were created. We were created in Christ Jesus, meaning that we were recreated as God's workmanship. No, it is not as a result of works, but we were created for good works. We were recreated not as a result of anything that we did. We have been recreated in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good or beautiful works. So um, here's your message for today. It's the grace of God. It's, it's this grace of God that he has for us. He, just this tremendous love that he has for us. Revel in the grace of God. Not in your own abilities or anything like that. Revel in the grace of God. And if you do that, that's going to have a transforming effect in your life so that you're not trying to prove yourself anymore. You're responding to grace. You're not trying to earn anything. You're responding to the great love that God has for you, the forgiveness that he has for you in Christ. And you're living out of that instead of living and based on some grim determination to accomplish something or prove, or prove yourself. And then once you get to that point, when you prove yourself, then you have to prove yourself again and accomplish more things. No, just revel in the grace of God. Stay there, and that's going to motivate you. That's going to change you if you revel in the grace of God. Is that going to make us lazy? Of course not. Listen to Paul, how he talks about grace working in his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But, the grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It is the grace of God that motivates us, properly motivates us. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He's, uh, he was a pastor for many years. He was kind of a pastor to the pastors. He wrote the message, which is that uh, paraphrase translation of the Bible. And he said this toward the end of his life. In 50 years of being a pastor, my most difficult assignment continues to be the task of developing a sense among the people I serve of the soul-transforming implications of grace, a comprehensive foundational reorientation from living anxiously by my wits and muscle to living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. The prevailing North American culture is, to all intents and purposes, a context of persistent denial of grace. Maybe that's the pastoral work at PBC that we need to undertake a little bit more to help us all understand the soul-transforming implications of grace. Paraphrasing Jesus from Luke chapter 7, he who is forgiven much loves much. If you understand that you're forgiven, if you understand how much you're forgiven, that has a soul-transforming effect in your life so that you live out of that instead of living trying to accomplish something. Notice that these works that God has prepared for us, he prepared them for us beforehand, at least before we do them, perhaps before we come to Christ, perhaps even before the foundation of the world, so that these works are just waiting for us to walk in. And they're beautiful. And that's the the translation of the word that's, that's translated good can also be translated beautiful. And that's how I would translate it here based on the fact that we are God's 
beautiful workmanship, created for beautiful works. And I look out at you, and I see what you're doing, and I see how you're serving. I see how you're loving one another. I see how you're loving the world. I see how you're going to your jobs each day. I see how you're looking for jobs. And you trust in the Lord. And I say, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. There was a woman here in the first service who I called attention to. Her name is Armine. She's been cutting my hair for 27 years. Now, I think God's prepared her for this. She's been, she, you know, she does this work every day. She goes to her shop in Menlo Park, and she cuts hair. And I have to say, she does beautiful work. About every two months, people come up to me and say, nice haircut. Why is that? That's because of Armine, who's serving the Lord in her barbershop. And now I've, I've called a few times to cancel on her. Never once in 27 years has she called to say she can't make it. Talk about faithfulness. Talking about doing beautiful work. Talking, talk about walking into the beautiful works that God has prepared for you. Notice in the text, we once walked in our trespasses and sins, and now we walk in the beautiful works that God has prepared for us to do. So um, I came to Christ. At the age of 16, I understood that I was a sinner. I had heard the gospel a few months before that. I was thinking about it for a few months, and eventually I confessed that I was a sinner. I turned to Christ, and I invited Christ into my life. But something interesting happened before that. At the beginning of my junior year in high school, I went to visit my academic counselor, and she said, "Uh, you need to take a class. You're missing a class. Why don't you take this? It's working on the newspaper. It's working with the newspaper. And what I thought she meant was that it's uh, working with the newspaper in terms of cutting out stories in the newspaper. It's kind of like a civics class, and you get around, you start, you analyze all the news that's going on. That's what I thought, that's what I thought I signed up for. When I showed up for the first day of class, I found out that it was working on the student newspaper. I didn't know. And when I walked into that class, pretty much right about the first day, I recognized this is a fit. Because I wasn't the greatest student in the world, but I was a pretty good writer. And about two weeks into the class, I decided when I was a junior in high school, at the beginning of my junior year, that I was going to be a journalism major. Indeed, that's what happened. I went to journalism school. I graduated. And then right after I graduated, I got a job working as a reporter. And I worked as a reporter and editor in the news business for 11 years. And of course, I'm not doing that anymore. I've been a pastor here at PBC for 27 years. But when I started working as a pastor, I realized a few things. I realized that in many ways, God had prepared me for this in ways that I had no idea that he was preparing me. So for example, when I first started studying the biblical text in order to preach sermons or teach from the biblical text, I realized that this is a lot like editing. Because what you're getting when you're editing, and I'd edited stories, newspaper stories for years, what you're getting is these reporters are giving you some information. Here's the story. You've got to figure out what they're saying. And you've got to help them say it a little better, maybe move, some, move a few things around, change a few things. And uh, but then when I started to study the text, the, the biblical text, I realized, you know what? I've kind of been doing this already. I've been doing this for years. 
looking at, the, looking at texts and trying to figure out what they're saying. And I saw that the, 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 the biblical authors were kind of like reporters. And then, of course, I also teach the scriptures. And when I started teaching the scriptures, I realized that, well, you know, I was a reporter for a lot of years. What do reporters do? They tell stories. They're, they're trying to communicate. They're using words to communicate that which they are observing and that's which they have researched. And so I realized as I started teaching, you know, I think I kind of know a little bit how to do this. I think maybe God's prepared me for this. And then also, of course, as a pastor, we meet with people and we do pastoral counseling. What do you do when you are doing pastoral counseling? You have to ask the right questions to get to the bottom of the story. Ah, when I was a reporter, that's what I did. I had to know what questions to ask of sources to get to the bottom of the story. And so when I started doing pastoral counseling, I'm thinking to myself, huh, I kind of know a little bit how to do this. I walked into the journalism class by accident. I was the accidental journalist before I came to Christ. God was preparing the good works for me, the beautiful works for me, before I even came to Christ. And all of that groundwork was laid so that I could be here even on this moment. Now, you can evaluate whether this is a good work or not. I don't know. But here I am, right? Now, why do I share all of this? Because of this. I am convinced that God is doing the same thing with you. He has done the same thing with you. He is doing it. He will do it. You're going to find all of these things. You've already found them. All of these things that God has prepared for you to do. And all you're doing is walking into them. And you're seeing, oh, this is a fit. Oh, this works. Oh, this this does something to my heart oh, I can help someone this way. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We started out today on earth where we once walked in our trespasses and our sins. We took a trip to heaven where we are even now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Then we came back to earth where we are now walking in the beautiful works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. What a trip. Now, do you think you can reorient yourself just a little bit away from anxiously living by your own wits and muscles? and toward living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. Revel in grace. Revel in the grace of God. Now we're going to have an opportunity to come to the table today. And I so appreciate this because this is grace that you can touch. This is grace that you can eat. This is grace that you can drink. Here we have words on a page, great words, awesome words, theological concepts. It's maybe a little bit abstract, but how do you make it concrete? I've tried to do that. I've tried to make it as concrete as I can, but I know my words are failing. Where my words fail, where even the words of the scriptures don't go all the way, we are given 
the table. We are given a concrete example of the grace of God. We eat grace. We drink grace. So I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, I want you to reflect a little bit in your own life on the grace of God. Reflect on the grace of God in your own life and then partake when you're ready. Heavenly Father, um, boy, this, 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 this grace, I don't know how to, how to understand it. I don't know how to put it into words. I don't know how to appreciate it. But Spirit, you are with us. You are with us to, 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 to open our hearts wide open. And I pray that you would do that. And I think you can do that right now as we partake, Lord. I pray that you would. And I, I ask, Lord, that as we, as we taste, as we touch, as we eat, as we drink, that we would know that we are tasting and touching and eating and drinking the grace of God. Would you make yourself real to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.